Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders, and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues, but we are so excited to bring to you each week someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hi folks and welcome to Parlay Me Power Place podcast. Today we have a truly revolutionary, yes, and inspiring character on the show. And I say character as you will soon find out why. So today we're speaking to Kenny Schachter, who is in our world an art provocateur. He has been curating contemporary art exhibitions and teaching art history and economics for over 30 years. Currently, he's in the graduate department of the University of Zurich with professorships in the School of Visual Arts New York and New York University. He's lectured internationally and been the recipient of the Rockefeller-supported grant in New Mexico. He writes internationally for the likes of New York Magazine and the Times Magazine UK, has a regular column on artnet.com, and is currently the subject of a documentary by director Chris Smith, and this has been profiled in the New York Times. Kenny is currently based in New York, But as we speak to him right now, he's actually in Vienna, but we'll find out more about that shortly. In the early days, instead of art school, Kenny went to law school and has consequently been entirely self-taught in art. So firstly, Kenny, welcome to Parley Me Power Players podcast. Yes, it's brilliant to have you here. And um, you're not one that's shy from the press. So you have a lot of interviews out there. You're a writer yourself. But I guess we really wanted to interview you because you have such a broad and quite amazing history in the art world and you are such a player, so to speak, currently in it. So I wanted to start off, um, you once said that there are no rules to being an artist, but rather it's an opportunity for endless seeing. Can you elaborate just a little bit on this view? Well, it's funny you say it because before I entered the profession, I was I only came to the art world very late in life. I didn't even, I always wanted to pursue something creative and entrepreneurial, but I was never aware of the commercial dissemination of art into the stream of commerce. So I was so naive throughout university when I first started attending museums, I I naively thought that art went directly from an artist to a museum. It wasn't until after law school when I was nearly 27 years old when I was procrastinating between jobs that I first came to the realization, I went to Andy Warhol's estate sale at Sotheby's. And that's when it first dawned upon me that art was actually something bought and sold. So that was a revelation and a bit of an epiphany. But I have to say, when I first became aware of the art world, I had this notion that the art world was this wild place with everyone drinking absinthe and hanging from the chandelier and engaging in orgies and stuff. But what I, it's funny because 
I mean, okay, so I say that art has no rules, but in fact, the art world is among the most conservative industries or businesses that I have ever been involved in in my entire life. It's shocking how backwards looking, in a sense, that the whole business is. And not only that, but it operates under this kind of crazy mafioso law of omerta where everything, nothing is really spoken about and uh, transparency is hard to come by. So how part of how I've made my career, I mean, no rules apply to me. I'm not sure that applies to everyone else. Just because I've been doing this long enough, I don't have any vested interests or I'm not beholden to anyone. So I don't really care who I alienate or what the fallout is. So, I mean, really, in the best of all worlds, artists would do what they want, when they want, how they want. And I think that's a popular misconception that they even can, because the art world is, in retrospect, a very rigid um, playing field and environment. So just, I mean, NFTs have been a phenomenon in the tech world, and that has become a major force in the art market in the past only really six months. And the backlash and the pushback has been absolutely astounding. So that just, that gives you an example of how the art world behaves when something innovative and something new is introduced into the into the field. Okay, cool. okay yeah. So um, we're just curious, kind of like, um, and I know it is broad, but why you have this perception that there are no rules to being an artist, but rather it's endless opportunity. It's only recently that I could even say that I've been taken a little bit more seriously as an artist or even taken myself more seriously as an artist. I've been teaching at university for nearly 30 years and professionally writing, but to make a living, I've had to resort to buying and selling art because I found it very difficult to be taken seriously in the fine art world, the traditional fine art world, as an art maker. And that really has to do with the fact that the art world is so traditional in as much as they try to pigeonhole you and categorize you. And they really look askance or look down upon somebody who tries to do different things. So historically, a dilettante was someone, I mean, that was that was appreciated culturally. I mean, you should be able to do whatever you want. As long as you do it well, it doesn't really matter. So I would say like professionally, the only thing on my side besides being old and having done this for 30 years is is my pure passion, crazy perseverance <laughs> and tenacity in not settling or capitulating and really developing a vision and sticking to it. So ultimately, I really just love art. And that is the basic, most basic kind of notion of what it is that drives me. And the second thing is that just to pursue my dreams and never settle. So I probably professionally set myself back maybe 15 years or more uh, because that I've been eclectic and I've tried to sort of not kowtow to the commercial art system and just doing things my mm-hmm. own way. You would think innovation would be celebrated in a field such as fine art, but in fact, it's an impediment or an obstacle because you're not playing along with the game in the way that people, they're fulfilling people's ex- conservative expectations. Absolutely. And and you are definitely known for uh, not going by the rules, so to speak. So it, it's worked for you, at least, you know, you've it is now, right? So I'm sure along your journey, and we can talk about that, there's been challenges and barriers along the way, like anything. But um, you've worked considerably hard in the industry. I mean, there's no doubt that hard work has got you to where you are. And you have been said 
to say that working is what it's all about and overnight success happens to like 0.0%. Um, what has been, I guess, the most beneficial strategy or perhaps maybe even opportunity that's created, that you've created for yourself or helped propel your career as an artist? Well, I mean, for instance, I've been writing since the early 90s, but I only really developed a larger audience within the art world over the past, let's say, seven to 10 years. And I guess what contributed to the expansion of my readership was the fact of like smartphones and social media. So that's gone a far way to democratize uh, the art world globally, where you no longer have to be in New York City or London to participate, Mm -hmm. but you could be in any corner of the globe geographically speaking, things have been really brought together. And I hate to hear people bemoan and complain, oh, me in particular, how much time I spend on things like Instagram. And the fact is that I'm in Vienna doing an exhibition with an artist who I've grown to absolutely adore and love the work of. And that's the reason why I'm in a two-person show here. And I met this woman, she's in her mid-60s. I'm in my very late 50s. We met on Instagram, funny enough, developed a crazy relationship where I've helped her get international gallery shows, disseminated her work worldwide, sold a lot of her work. And we only first met after a year and a half of multiple projects together. We only just met when I landed in Vienna four days ago. And that's an astounding thing. So yeah, it's it's uh yeah, I totally hear you. Uh it's interesting because you've in the past um you didn't view yourself as an artist until much later. Um can you perhaps tell us um why this is and I guess that moment you kind of recognized yourself as an artist but because obviously you or well not obviously those that are listening that don't know you you've been you know you've very much worked in the art world curating art and then you were creating art but you still didn't view yourself as an artist so when did the when was the transition so to speak well this one if I can just go back a little bit so it's so for, so what I was saying was like I never really took myself too seriously as a writer until about 10 years ago mainly because for my lack of an audience. And I didn't really identify as a writer because I had to do so many other things in between. Mm. And once social media and the adaptation of phones and more people were comfortable reading the, the content of media online, which now, I mean, online sites have virtually surpassed all of the major magazines and newspapers. Their online presence is integral to their existence pretty much altogether. Otherwise, you sink or swim by your exposure on online media. And then as an artist, funny, I mean, because I invented this platform to promote my own artwork, which was embedding within my writing video, digital videos and computer manipulated photographic work. So basically, even though I had no uh, professional gallery support to help promote my work and to sell my work and develop a collector base, I was able to have my work seen on a far-reaching basis. Every single month, I, I, I basically had a one-person show in my Artnet column online, which I still write for regularly. So based on this column, somebody gave me a tongue-in-cheek career retrospective when I barely even had that many one-person exhibitions, and that was in 2018, and that did really well. And then I had another show in LA and a group show in London. I had only had one or two major exhibitions like 
two <laughs> before that, and major may have been an overstatement. So I would, I should retract that. But really, I found out about I had been making art with digital based media for thirty years, and that contributed. I never made it easy for myself, besides my personality disorder, with making digital videos, animations, and manipulated photographic work. I found out about NFTs in September. Did I was able to slip in and do a drop with Nifty Gateway in in December of 2020. And that was a small affair, but um, I wrote more about NFTs, really the first in the traditional fine art world to do so. And by the time I had a second drop, I had a relative commercial success for the first time in 30 years. And I, I mean, it's sad to say that economic kind of affirmation justified in my own mind that I was an artist, but you know, you think to be a professional artist necessitates selling stuff. And that was the first time that, I mean, I sold like 600 pieces in 15 minutes on Nifty Gateway. So in a sense, I mean, professional does mean you're able to make some uh, degree of a living from it. And that's only starting for me at this juncture in my life, which also like the fact that I met this Eva Berrison, the artist I'm showing with in Vienna, she's in her mid sixties and we both changed each other's lives. And it gives people hope and inspiration that, like you said initially when you first started, not, there's no quick fix. There's no free lunch. Overnight success typically takes a lifetime to happen. So, you know, yeah, there's no, it takes time. Art is a slow burning process, as is, you know, accruing any great uh, information and knowledge and wisdom in any field takes time, takes work, takes study you know, sweat, blood, and labor. And that's no substitute for just doing the work, plain and simple. It's not... Uh, it's 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 a necessity in no uncertain terms and you just can't you can't operate in a vacuum there's no such thing as an artist toiling away in an attic somewhere in an atelier making masterpieces in the woods it's just it can't happen and because things like nfts and new new technological uh tools to further you know create uh, ways of artists to disseminate their work and to create, you really, you have to take matters into your own hands, no matter what stage of your career and uh, being able to take control and to have the wherewithal to do so is imperative. It's integral to negotiating a successful career because otherwise you're going to be beholden to other people. Even if you're having a gallery and having some degree of success, there's international markets. A lot of times people would be surprised to know that the interests of an art dealer could even be adverse to the interests of the artist they're representing in as much as so much of the art world is about control, controlling access, who gets to buy stuff. You know, the gallery wants as much work as they can for the artists that they could sell. So they're not going to necessarily help an artist get further opportunities far afield from their initial representation. So anyway, in a nutshell, the most important thing is that you develop your own networks more so than ever, take advantage of, I mean, Instagram has been wildly, you know, revolutionary in terms of rather than having to send a set of photographic 
reproductions of your art by mail to convey what you're doing visually. Now you have more means at your disposal than ever before. And one of the most interesting things about back to non-fungible tokens, which is the order of the day across the world these days, since I've been in Vienna for four days at every lunch and every dinner and all anybody wants to talk about is those three letters, magical, mystical, or horrifying, it's on everybody's tongue. And the fact is that what's incredible about NFTs in relationship to taking back control and empowering artists are that they could launch their own work onto a network like OpenSea or Rarible without any gatekeepers or intervention from outside, uh, you know, control, back to that word. And so they can sell their work. There's a new audience of tech buyers and the artists are afforded a 10% residual in perpetuity. So they're continually remunerated for their work throughout the course of its lifetime, which is absolutely not true in the regular art world or the, you know, traditional art world. No shortcuts, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Well, that's that's what I wanted to kind of talk to, I guess, about, you know, creating networks. Obviously, it takes time, even in real life or in social networking, it still takes time. So, you know, obviously, in the entrepreneurial space where we work, it's vital. Um, how important is it to the art, work, art world? And do you think it's becoming increasingly important or less important? Or what's your view on that? Well, I mean, even the first time I entered a gallery and you're looked up and down, you're immediately pigeonholed into what kind of, you know, economic, economic strata you fall within, what kind of shoes are you wearing, uh, what kind of clothing you're wearing. And I mean, if you go to a major gallery, like one big international gallery, Hauser and Worth, if you step into the gallery and simply ask someone behind the reception desk, how much a piece of art costs, you'll see the look of horror in this person's eyes behind the desk. And they'll make three or four phone calls, and you still won't be able to find out how much it costs. So you'll frequently hear about waiting lists for art that's very covetable at the time. And the thing is, it's all about really who you are socially and economically. And uh, based on that basis alone is what gives you access. So, I mean, really, success affirms success, and the galleries and the collectors only want to deal with what's been proven financially whether it's at auction or critically or having successful sales. So it just, like you said before, the barriers of entry are so high, you can't even see over the wall. It's so imposing. So that's why these social networks that you talk about, artists really, although they have greater opportunities than ever before, and they also have the means, which never existed, for forging these relationships through things like social media. But even though, again, it's, in a way, it's more work for the artists, and uh, but it really behooves them to take advantage. You have to grow your own audience, and that is painstaking and takes years. But you can't just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like a, a misconception to think that you could rely on having someone help you along the way or nurture your career as an art dealer. Art, everyone is so self-interested today, and. You know, you really have to take matters into your own hands. And if you do so carefully and wisely uh, with care, like you could develop it over time like I have, which is completely on my own terms, according to my own plan, without, you know, compromise. But it's taken a good long time and I've made things a little more difficult for myself. 
not to mention some of my past behaviors, none of which we'll get into right now. But, you know, it really takes a lot of focus because you have to understand, I mean, the art world is bigger today. It's grown in the last 25 years, more so than, than in the past 250 years. There's so many people that are after the same result and the pie is only so big. So there's only so many resources. And even though the art world is bigger than it's ever been, about 60 billion a year as a business, it's still relatively minuscule compared to like, you know, the computer industry or Apple makes that much money in 45 minutes. And that's a, a year's worth of the art market. So the thing is, it's a very much a zero sum economic gain where game where one person succeeds at the direct expense of another person. So you really have to, it takes a lot of focus, a lot of self-discipline. You have to put on the blinders. I, I don't go to movies. I don't go to theater. I have very few <laughs> hobbies outside of my profession, mainly just because I enjoy it so much. And it's not work to me on any level. I basically, I mean, Warren Buffett even said that find what you love that you would do for free and then make a profession out of it. And I think that really is the most important uh, mission in anyone's life is really, you really have to look within and find the thing that gets you excited, gets you kind of horny intellectually, and then just do it and don't stop and don't let any impediment get in your way. And that's really, you know, and that's driven me so much. And it's as any, any success I've ever had is because I just, I just saw something and I wanted it and I wasn't going to settle. Another thing is like I love I love to share information and I love to inspire people, and I think that another really important thing to listeners are that you just like I return I reply to every single DM and every single email that I receive. It used, I don't, you know I don't care. It used to be a little bit more manageable before NFTs, but since I I've written four features for Artnet on NFTs and I've given a small lecture at NYU, but I've given a large lecture at School of Visual Arts in New York, and that's on YouTube right now. And I revealed all of my, all the sources of my information, all my contacts. There's a lot of negatives about the whole space, a lot of positives, and a load of information that you could screenshot off the presentation and use for yourself. But forgetting me, you should never be frightened to reach out to someone who you revere or respect or admire in any field and I mean, through these like Twitter and Instagram, you just reach out and ask them questions. Don't be shy. The worst that could happen is you, you, you get no reply or you get shut down, but it never, it, you really have to reach out to people and don't be shy and ask, ask advice, but do so. Like I've had people just demand, like get me onto Nifty Gateway and please, you know, put me on this. And I mean, have a little respect and a little manners and they go a long way towards getting exactly what it is you want. 100%. That is pure gold. It's so true. Um, I wanted to actually kind of segue just slightly. I mean, we're all living it. We all know it. The pandemic. I don't want to get into a whole thing about it, but it's so obviously, I mean, um, for those that are listening, unfortunately, and I, my heart goes out to you, you actually contracted COVID. You've re since recovered. I think you, um, position, you say you're a long hauler, so I'm, terribly sorry to hear that um but I I guess I wanted to talk about like how I guess perhaps the pandemic was almost a perfect concoction to go back to NFTs 
because the general public kind of had no no way to access galleries, you know, in the physical space. They were going online doing like these virtual showings. Was it kind of like the perfect storm, do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, again, like there were 50 art fairs, international art fairs to buy and sell art in the year 2000. By mm. 2019, before COVID, there were 360 per year. And wow. once COVID hit in last March, it went to zero. I think there were two within the year, March to March. Right. And, and that's it. So really there was this, like you said, a perfect storm. I would say that across the world and every sector in the economy, uh, the usage and assimilation and acceptance of technology was accelerated by 15, 10 to 15 years, without doubt. So mm. when art fairs stopped, uh, galleries were showing their art on what was called OVR, which was mm. online viewing room. And I would say they're glorified websites, but there was nothing glorified about them. They were just <laughs> stupid, stupid, boring, antiquated, you know, looking at images on a website. It was not any, you would think that the art world would be the first to adapt and to use, you know, 3D imagery where you could walk around a sculpture in a, in a virtual space, but really it was none of this. So like I said before, the art world is more like Lloyd's of London in the 1700s, the way they conduct business, which is typically two guys sitting at a table, shaking hands on a deal. And it's also crazy how so little of the art market is uh, codified like in a contract. I would say that like at least half the business is transacted verbally without even a handshake, but that's another story. So when everyone was stuck in front of their computers, grounded without air travel, without ways of seeing art other than on computers, then NFTs came into prominence and it opened up this crazy Pandora's box of an entirely new audience of people, a new market and a new complete, uh, you know, trading uh, platform within which to buy and sell digitally based art. So, and open 24 seven across the world. So if this would have happened when the art world was full blown celebrating some international art fair in some corner of the globe, uh, yeah. without a doubt, the reception would have been less, uh, you know, uh, all encompassing the way that I've never seen. I would say that NFTs have compressed the notion of time that, you know, a year, six months in the digital space is like dog years. It's like seven years of regular life. So I have never seen something. I mean, I hate the word disruptive or the word important, which are thrown around with such abandon in, in the world today. But this has been nothing short of an absolute uh, departure, a major revolution in terms of how artists can access buyers and sellers and create opportunities for themselves when, I mean, you would think COVID, which again, like you said, I've, I've been a long haul sufferer. Thankfully I'm alive and I, I, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. And I've received my vaccinations prior to departing, departing. I mean, in New York, everyone is vaccinated and you could just walk in with no lines and easily get shots. But yeah. So, but anyway, the fact is that um, because people were grounded and everyone has dipped in and uh, it's been fortuitous that it was like this kind of, the timing was so perfect. Of course, it's been a terrible tragedy. So many lives have been lost. And if you look at a place like India, it's devastating that uh. it could still be happening. And I'm afraid that this is just not going to stop anytime soon. We're going to need shots 
probably for the rest of our lives on a very uh, frequent basis with all the new derivations of this hideous virus. But at the same time, humans are quite uh, flexible in terms of finding ways around obstacles and impediments like rocks in a stream. And we find other ways of being. Since art came off the, of the wall of a cave, it's been coveted and it's such it's so ingrained in human nature to express yourselves in whether it's by being an accountant and doing it with great verve or whatever it doesn't matter and it it's incredible how you know you would expect there to be a giant downturn a kind of you know systematic recession with galleries closing left and right and that absolutely wasn't the case in a way the galleries had lower revenue across the board but probably higher profit than they could have dreamed of because their expenses were cut so drastically from traveling all over the world to represent their their artists in these international art fairs, which are wildly costly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, getting on a plane <laughs> and then your hotels and just everything. Socializing, let's not forget that. The parties are extravagant. So tell me, um, your passion for art's clear, right? So... I would like to know, and those listening perhaps as well, what age did you realize that art was your passion, that you truly loved it? Was it from an early age or was it something you, you didn't, you weren't schooled, so, so to speak, in art, you were self-taught, but when did you realize it was kind of your calling? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And as a child, um, I really had, I, I, my, I lost my mother when I was very young. She passed away when I was 13 from cancer. And my father just was so preoccupied with his business. He just wasn't terribly supportive in, in, in any capacity, really. And I was a bit overweight and I had a speech. I stuttered a bit. Now I never shut up. And that's because I couldn't talk for the first like 12 years of my life. And I really just sort of was alienated and cut and paste images from magazines or pin them up on my wall. And in a way, in a certain sense, by today, with this digital practice I have of creating uh, new imagery from pre-existing imagery using digital means, uh, in a way, it hasn't changed since I was a kid. And I've been making art from the beginning as soon as I discovered that one could act. I call myself like an idiot, idiot savant, because I wasn't even aware that that was an option. I was never exposed to art in any capacity. In the first art class that I was in, I was teaching. I would basically, because I went to, I studied philosophy. There was no job for philosophy. And then I went to law school just to really hide until I could um, figure it out, to figure out. I mean, I defined what I wanted to do in the negative about like how I, what I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't want a regular job, a, a kind of, um, you know, where you would do the same thing over and over and over again. I basically never do the same thing twice in any day. But anyway, while I was in law school, I told my I told my employers that I was in night school and my family, and there was no night school. And I and I I was employed in a series of different disparate jobs, from working on the floor of the stock exchange, writing for a law firm. I went into the fashion business. So really, like I said, I didn't find out about art until I went to Sotheby's, where Warhol's estate was being sold in 1988. And then I immediately went into a gallery uh, and found some art to buy and went to a bank, went to Chase Manhattan Bank and tried to take out an unsecured loan to buy some art. And they looked at me like I had come from Mars or escaped from a mental institution. 
of course, they flatly rejected me. And then I had passed the bar, shocking uh, that was at the time. And then I had a part-time job practicing law. And I got the, the manager of the firm to call the bank and vouch for me. And I immediately like became this dealer to dealer dealer. So I love art, but I can't sell drugs to a drug addict. So I'm a terrible salesman because I mean, I can convince myself. And as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's enough. And I just don't want to bear like this moral obligation to be responsible for someone to like something. So I found again, like I knew what I loved. I loved art. I knew I needed to make a living to buy more art. And I found a way to sell it to other art dealers. So Art dealers always need art for their clients, for art fairs, and for all of these different situations. So I would feed the art, the auction houses. I've done a series of two single owner sales at Sotheby's, and I kind of made a conceptual joke about it, calling it the hoarder. And the hoarding is has a negative connotation of someone who lives in a home and gets buried by their stacks of refuse and garbage and old newspapers that suffocates them to death. And that's sort of kind of anyone who collects art, it's like professional institutional collecting where it frequently entails storage and warehousing. And so since over the past two Decembers, I've had these two single owner sales. So really, it's like by any means necessary, what can I do to ensure a life, a continued life in the arts? And that's collecting art over three decades and then selling it piecemeal, whether it's to other galleries to auction um, or to pro- advisors and once in a while to a private collector. And over during COVID, I launched a series of um, online sales through Instagram and my website and had around six or seven shows since last August. And that really was a stopgap measure to help me have a stream of income. And now since NFTs, for the first time in my life, I've been able to make, you know, some some money from selling my own works and that's been the best of all worlds really and a dream well um i have to say from one hoarder to the other i'm not a hoarder of art i wish i wish i had the bank account to be but i'm a hoarder of many things so i i get you and it is true um you know and that's what's interesting i guess about nfts um you know the critics so to speak will be like well What's the point of buying art if you can't hang it on your wall? But when you think about art collectors, at least a lot of the art collectors I know, they're in the basement. You don't see half of them anyway. Um, and, I, you know, we'll talk about NFTs again, but NFTs, I think there'll be some kind of visual display. There already display. is. Right, exactly. So that's all happening. So um, I guess you're really known also for your provocative writings, if you will, and you've acknowledged that the world is small and the art world is even smaller. With this in mind, it would it would appear um, that you really aren't afraid to offend or rather you look to challenge and create dialogue. So who have perhaps, I guess, and I guess you don't have to name names, but if you want to, feel free. Um, but who perhaps have you most offended in the art world? You once... You once were kicked out of Art Basel. <laughs> Perhaps you can tell us that story. But And you've even had death threats. But, yeah, I'm just curious. Is there anyone you can speak to <laughs> or an experience? Well, I mean, it's funny because, like I said, I've been writing since early 90s. And in the beginning, there just wasn't a lot of feedback because nobody read what I was writing, which <laughs> doesn't help <laughs> get a reaction. Anyway, so 
after around like 2013, 14, 15, I started to write again after I had stopped for a little while. And I would write articles about going to art fairs and going to auctions. And really, I have this hunger for information. I just love to learn and I love to share what I learn. You spend your life gaining information and then the rest sharing it, really, whatever wisdom. And I'm always grateful if anybody gives a damn to hear anything that I have to say. So after traveling around, and it's very rare, I may be the only one in the universe, probably for good reason, that does what I do, where I make art, I write about it, I teach it, and I buy it, and I sell it. So I have this kind of um, position of access to information by being a participant on all these different levels of the art world. And when I started to address the, I've been writing all along about the same subjects of just about the machinations of the art world. But as I started to do it and more people started to read it, when I would write something and I would usually from my own experiences. And when you're a writer, the worst things that happen to you in a perverse way, you sort of enjoy it because it has another life as part of your story or telling a story. So these things would happen to me or I would find out about them from sources because I've been around for so long. And then I just, like I said, I'm self-employed. I have three warehouses full of crap that I've collected over the years, over the decades. So I'm not reliant on anyone within the art world to make a living because even like I always say the art world, you get stabbed in the front and then you have dinner with your assailant because you can't afford to alienate anyone that you could potentially do another deal with. So if I'm the biggest asshole in the world, but I have a blue Picasso, I'd pretty much be able to sell it to anyone, including the people that hate me the most, because it's hard <laughs> enough to come by such a thing. So anyway, I would write about these these events and these experiences. And like I said, I just, I'm old. I've been doing this for a long time and I don't care. So I would write about this and then the, the, the feedback would be so compelling and it would just... It would push me further to egg me on to go even deeper and to reveal more because people seem to really, really appreciate it. And even my worst detractors, like people, they still read what I write because I'm the only one who really has the stupidity and or the courage because I don't care. I'm not reliant on any of these people. And I think that in a way, to a certain extent, people respect it by default really because I'm one of the only people in the art world that writes about these things and names the names where um, without really fear of repercussions. And like you said, I've had people threaten, threaten my life, people in the middle of a restaurant in Manhattan on Madison Avenue last November, this famous lawyer threatened to beat me up at the top of his lungs using other words that are not really printable nor repeatable. Uh, screaming to challenge me to a fight in the middle of a restaurant on a crowded Tuesday afternoon with the whole art world sitting in the restaurant. And, in COVID times right? as well. In COVID times now, this was as well. Last November, just before. But oh, um, okay. I mean, I've had someone, one of my kids dove in and stopped someone else from hitting me, punching me in the face in Hong Kong oh. in the middle of another Basel art event. Oh, gosh. But I guess really, <laughs> you know, I tell the truth. And, you know, you hear all of people complaining about fake news in the last four years under Trump. And the thing is, the art world loves lies. Everybody is hyperbolizing, exaggerating, you know, and to have someone who just tells the truth about what they see and what they know, 
unfortunately makes you a really kind of rare bird in, in the in the field because so few people, everyone is so cautious and no one expresses themselves because they're scared of the repercussions or to lo- alienate someone and lose a deal. So, I mean, I yeah. broke the story that the Prince of Saudi Arabia had uh, squirreled away the Leonardo da Vinci that he bought for $450 million. Two years ago, I broke the story that it was sitting on his yacht he was going to he was going oh. to loan it to the Louvre, and then he decided not to for various reasons that have been bandied around. He wanted it next to the Mona Lisa, and the museum refused to do it, or they refused to acknowledge that the painting was exclusively by Da Vinci. So I broke the story, and then I made a video. Frequently, like when the guy Richard Golub, who's a famous lawyer, when he tried to beat me up in the restaurant, rather than recoil oh. from it. I made an, a video about it and wrote about it. And that was the third time he's threatened me in public. And you would think he would learn because each and every time he's done so, I've written about it. And then I make an art piece about it because I find it kind of amusing <laughs> from a scary point of view. But when I broke the story about the princes um, having this painting on his boat, uh, I mean, it was, the Wall Street Journal just ran what they called an exclusive, confirming my story. But I wrote this story two years ago. And they said, oh, room. they did credit me, which also doesn't happen terribly often that I actually told the story two years ago, but somehow they managed to call their telling of my story an exclusive. But then I was, I was in Basel just after I wrote this story when it first appeared and someone of Middle Eastern origin came up and I was talking to this shipping magnate from Greece, this uh, woman and somebody came up and said, are you Kenny Schachter? And I swear the woman jumped and her feet left the ground when I was about oh. to be shot. And then the man just said how much he liked my writing. And um, I mean, I'm not being facetious. The thing is, I just care about art. I hear about who's buying it, about who's selling it. All of these crazy kind of manipulations behind the scenes that occasionally happen in auction houses or in galleries. Things get damaged. Things get mis communicated to the public about what actually transpired. And I find this information out and I convey it to people and I tell it because I just think, like me, I'm not the only one who's just really hungering for some truths and to really just learn the behind the scene uh, ways and means within which this business uh, carries on. And I think, I mean, I love to just empower people, to inspire people and Look, I mean, CNN just called me the other day, called me the other day, and they were trying to uh, do a feature about, you know, also how nefarious the art world is. And I know in the past I've made comments that the art world could be, the art market could be a cesspool of corruption, but really it's like a bell's curve of morality in the world. And the art world is certainly no better or worse than that behavior at Goldman Sachs, say. So it's really like a... I mean, you said before about collecting art. Another big misconception is that good art is expensive. All you read about is expensive art. In the newspaper, after a big auction, there's a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting coming up on May 12th at Christie's with an estimate of $50 million. And a side Twombly scribbles, just scribbles on a gray background, which will far exceed $50 million in all probability. But the fact is that even with NFTs and fine art, paintings, and sculptures in the traditional sense, you could buy great art for three to $500. You could buy great NFTs for $100, $200. You really can. You only hear about the 0.005% of outlandishly pornographic prices at auction and on the art market, 
But really, to this day, I mean, this artist, Eva Berison, that I found on Instagram a year and a half ago that I'm showing with today at Gallery Karam in Vienna, we met on Instagram and I bought a bunch of her work for in, in the hundreds of dollars each, not more. And so that's yeah. the thing, you know. And that and that's the dream. I mean, you know, for investors, I guess we're talking about, you know, to find an artist, I guess, when they're kind of starting out or when they're accessible, so to speak, and it only values. I mean, that's the hope, I guess, for a lot of NFTs. But also it's like just to have an amazing what you think. I mean, art is relative, right? Um, it's all subjective. No, no. What you, I, I, what I think that like. quality is inherent and, and object. If you take a Picasso that's, let's say, you know, 40 centimeters square or 30 inches square, and it's of a certain year, certain color, certain composition, you could take five experts in the field from across the world, and they'll come up with a value that's within five percentage points of each other. So I think that good art is almost scientific in that quality is, is not subjective. However, when, I mean, if you really just want to do, no one could make money in art unless you're Larry Gagosian or some of these bigger collectors, families that have been collecting for decades, a dealer whose nose is to the screen 24 hours a day. You can't make money doing anything unless you're doing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And art is no different. In fact, art is probably even more complex than trading commodities or trading derivatives or, you know, so yes, you can make money, but really the main... you. You know, the most important thing is to buy what you love. It, if you're starting out and you have like a serious amount of money, say $100,000, of course, you don't want to spend the money without a view towards future value. That's normal and that's the way it should be. But then it's very important that you have a trusted source. And I'll tell you, in the art world, there's not that many, but you need a trusted source to put the right information in front of you. And once you have a kind of universe of artists of a certain quality, from that basis of knowledge, should you only ever choose what you love, what you would want to live with? And NFTs, you know, people say you can't see them, you can never display them, you just have them in your digital wallet, on your phone, on your laptop. But the fact is, like you mentioned before, storage and free ports, most collectors that collect like a virus obsessionally and have hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pieces, largely the majority is kept in storage in a crate somewhere in a darkened room with zero humidity, et cetera, sometimes no oxygen. And the fact is that you can buy, I mean, since videos have been bought and sold as art, you have to watch them on a TV. So there's going to be dedicated devices to look at your NFTs, desktop devices already exist that you can upload your pieces onto. You can have TVs that accept memory sticks that, you know, to, to have your images on view. And, I'm making an art piece now, a video of like an NFT commercial where you can have your NFTs being displayed on a necklace, on a backpack, on a T-shirt, on all kinds of different crazy devices, but that's not too far-fetched. So, you know, really you can make money from it, but if you just look at it as a commodity or something with an upside, you're going to be largely disappointed unless you're spending as much days and hours per week as you do on your regular profession. Yeah, yeah. You need to you need to do the hard work, so to speak. You need to do the research, like any like any industry. If you're going to look at the investing side, absolutely. You've actually worked with and um, commissioned work from and 
I mean, amazing artists. Um, one that you spoke to, I, I was watching some of your interviews, is one called Vito Aconchi, and he designed a studio of yours. And for those that don't know, Vito is like an influential American performance video and installation artist. Um, he did sculpture, architectural design, landscape design. Kenny, you can probably give a better <laughs> overview of Vito than I can. Um, but could you perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about this studio and how you came to, I guess, collaborate or meet or however you <laughs> well, I mean, You described it. his career perfectly, but most famously and most outlandishly, in 1972, he was making a conceptual point and he built a floor on top of a floor, an existing gallery on an angle, and he hid underneath the floor during the course of his ex- exhibition and masturbated for, for hours <laughs> on end each day. And in a way, that was one of the early things that brought me in. I thought if you could make a career in this business by masturbating, I may have found my calling. And But the fact is that he did it in a very intellectual, symbolic way, and it wasn't kind of just, you know, as an act of provocation in and of itself. And he went on to have a storied career teaching at Cooper Union, one of the finest art schools in the world. There's been textbooks written about him and he's in every major museum collection. But there's a few very interesting points. Uh, He shifted throughout his life from doing performance art, like I just described, we'll call it a performance, to doing Mm -hmm. art that, video art, uh, really unwieldy sculptural installations, And then he started to do design and ultimately architecture. And in a way, you would think that the art world would reward people that constantly challenge themselves with this thirst of curiosity. Because for me, like, I'm just so curious, always sticking my nose where it shouldn't go, opening doors that I shouldn't open in museums and galleries, looking in the back room and looking for what's hidden away. But... You know, the, if you look at an artist like Damien Hirst, who's become just a wildly successful entrepreneur, even maybe, you know, he uses art, but it's almost a hybrid between luxury goods, art, and design with the things that he's doing. He's also about to release 10,000 NFTs in one go, and he's calling it the currency. Mm-hmm. And by all intents and purposes, it's nothing less or different than a currency. But Vito Acconci was one of these old school people that started as a poet segued into performance, into video, segued into sculpture and various different things. Damien Hirst has made over 2,000 spot paintings, paintings of different multicolored spots. And you would think uh, intuitively that that would be a bad thing for an artist to do, to just repeat themselves ad infinitum. But the fact is that, like I said before, success affirms success. So if a new nouveau riche collector comes in and goes to their friend's house in 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 Greenwich, Connecticut, and sees a Jeff Koons and a Damien Hurst and all of these names, they're gonna like you know um, swan into an art gallery and they're gonna want exactly what they just saw at their friend's house. And that's why you see an artist like Damien or Jeff Koons make what amounts to endless series of their works because that's what people want. If you made fifteen or twenty different masterpieces that wildly varied one from the next, that you didn't have a signature style for people to readily and easily identify to, then you would be making things much harder for yourself. So really, again, one of the great kind of um, misconceptions that people have in the art world is that uh, it's that if you innovate and you constantly fluctuate by challenging yourself and your viewer, 
by exploring different avenues of creativity. This is, I mean, Vito Acconci was, like I said, in every major museum, but died destitute. And it's because in the last 20 years of his life, he pursued a career in industrial design and architecture. And I just revered him so much on a professional level that when I found out that he was doing architecture, I asked, sorry, I asked him to design an exhibition space for me. And based on that, we forged this incredible relationship that lasted until his death. And he, I, Peggy Guggenheim, I mean, normally the architecture in just like this kind of mentality of exclusionish, of exclusionary behavior in the art world that you mentioned, most galleries across the world are a very sterile architectural model of four white walls. They're open the same hours, generally from Africa to, you know, to New Jersey, four white walls open Tuesday to Saturday, generally from 10 to six. And you would think like, why would galleries be closed on Sunday when everyone is available? It's because the audience thereafter is not the casual passerby, but the audience thereafter are rich people with disposable income that have a relationship with art collecting. So by nature of the fact that Vito never settled and he did a load of different things, he was, he suffered. He suffered vastly. Some of the artists that I care about the most have the smallest markets because they never settled and always challenged themselves to explore new avenues of production and creation. So, yeah. So anyway, um, I, I, I commissioned Vito to design an exhibition space that was wildly dissimilar to anything that had come before. And in, in fact, we, uh, we used as a jumping off point a gallery that Peggy Guggenheim had created in 1942 that was designed by this architect artist, Frederick Kiesler. And the walls were had, I mean, they were furniture objects that had 18 different functions to them. And in the gallery that Vito designed for me in the back of my house in the West Village, the walls were like metal mesh and you can hang art with hooks. There were panels in the, in the walls that would open up to create seating or pedestal. And it was just this outlandish kind of fantasy uh, amusement park type of space that also looked like a cage fighting arena. But it was it was just unusual and something different, really, to just push. Even when I did a physical space, I couldn't do it normally. That's just my behavior, the pattern of my uh, activity in life. Your signature, your signature. I, I, you've also worked with the amazing Sahih Hadid, You've commissioned many works, in fact. Um, and what I guess we'd love to know is kind of your Sahih Hadid stories, if you will. Uh, my understanding is you met in 2003 um, and you, I quote, you say you decided to domesticate her architecture, so to speak, um, and you said, like, not everyone can own a building, but perhaps you can have a Sahih Hadid chair. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, working with Sahar? Well, I mean, she was just one of the most extraordinary human beings that I've ever met in my life and was the way that I model myself to be an inspiration for other people. Zaha was just an extraordinary human being and a force of nature. So literally she toiled away with, with, with little or no success for decades largely because she was not only a woman architect in a man's world, but she was an Arab woman practicing architecture in the UK, which has a lot of uh, systemic racism in the country and especially in the profession. 
And I met Zaha back when you said in 2003, 2004, when I was thinking of doing another crazy architectural project within which that display and exhibit art. And we forged this crazy improbable relationship. And I really just loved to be in her presence, not because I was an architecture fanatic at all, but I just deeply admired her career path. And she didn't break the glass ceiling for women. She exploded the glass ceiling. And we traveled literally Azerbaijan to Korea, Spain, New York, from London, all over the world. And I curated, I basically got her to create this hybrid body of work which was installation, sculpture, coming from uh, design history. And I organized exhibitions for her in New York City at one of the most legendary art galleries, Ileana Sanaben Gallery. I did a project with Norman Foster and his wife, Elena, that I curated with Saha in Madrid. A funny thing was when I was, we were giving a panel discussion and I found myself sandwiched between Norman Foster and Zaha Hadid and I have as little background I have in art, I had less in architecture. And then Zaha spoke and Norman spoke and I was it was my turn to speak. And Zaha just looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, you've had your turn to talk and now it's my turn. But and she also had this uh, temper. Now, if if a, if a man expresses himself in a business context, that really is behavior of of a strong-willed person who takes control and knows what they want and how they want to execute it. But when a woman behaves in the same fashion, she's shrill, she's a witch, she's a crazy, impetuous person. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly the case with Zaha. I mean, she won a famous competition uh, in the UK to produce uh, an opera house, and then they literally pulled it out from under her and took it away. And the great lesson to be learned was that she never stopped. No obstacle could ever get in the way of her pursuing her vision, which was absolutely unprecedented. And in the end, she worked herself to a premature death. But uh, I really, like, it was incredible. I never, I, she, I never really talked to her the way I'm talking to you, just to be in her presence. And we had lunch every weekend for years. And it was always really just kind of talking about architecture and design and this type of thing. But she kind of, she would always try to get me to, to take a position managing her studio practice, which was enormous, 400 employees at the time. And she's probably the only architect in history where her firm has not only continued to exist, but it's continued to thrive and expand even in her absence since her untimely death. And it's been extraordinary. And just being in such close proximity to such a force, a mind, a a person who from scratch created, changed the history of architecture in no uncertain terms. And to be able to have this privilege of traveling all over the world and to be in close proximity to a great thinker. I mean, I would walk down the street with her across the world and people, girls, men, boys, would come running across the street and just thank her that not only about architecture, but they empowered, she empowered other people to pursue their dreams and not take no for an answer and not be subjugated or, you know, so it was just an incredible experience. She was, she could be uh, a bit harsh with, I remember seeing her assistant at one point when I was curating an exhibition of her work and he was wildly disheveled. And I said, you look like you got thrown out of a car. And he said, how do you know? And she had kind of shoved him out of a moving car. 
But and she also used to say to me, like, you're not serious. What do you do? You don't do anything. You just watch Oprah all day. Because I just, I never talked about myself because I just wanted to absorb like a sponge as much as I possibly could from her. And then one day I, I a few, like, in, I don't know, I won a writing award at some point. And out of the blue, I never even told her I was writing about art. And she called me up and congratulated me. And I was really touched because she knew everything, but she never really let on about it. And she was just, I mean, I just really, really appreciate people from whole cloth that have not only had a dream, but implemented it, you know, and it was just an extraordinary experience I had. And it was so, it was such a loss that I still feel just every, so regularly missing her. Yeah. Wow. What a, that is. And can I ask, so you met in 2003 and then how long were you um, working together? Was like on and off? Uh, like how I long? Mean, we or? became best friends. And like I said, traveled to all, all, all over the world. If she was having a business, an opening of a building in Seoul in Korea, I would arrange to give a lecture at Yonsei University, one of the top business schools wow. in Asia. So we had this kind of symbiotic relationship where, and I curated seven or eight exhibitions for her all over the world. So from 2000, I, it's funny because before I actually, once I commissioned a building early on, I had trouble. I mean, my expertise is limited at best in the thing I love. So I certainly couldn't go too far afield. And I wanted to do a building by her, but I never had the confidence or the expertise to do it. And she would always joke that I was so unprofessional and not serious in life and wasn't able to do anything. Uh, but we started, and then at one point, uh, I love classic cars and I was drawn even because I had a childhood that was artless. And not only did I not go to galleries or museum being taken by my family, but I didn't even know they existed until university and art galleries well after. And uh, I asked someone within Zaha's firm to design a conceptual car for me because I love the design of classic cars, the way they were bespoke, handmade, and with incredible attention to detail. And that drew me to aesthetics before I knew what a painting was. So I literally asked one of, Zaha had one partner throughout her entire professional life, Patrick Schumacher, and I forged a relationship with him before her. And I asked him to design a car within the firm and he did so and I never told her. And I ended up putting that into an international car show and I kind of sort of never told her because I was pretty much petrified to speak to her in the beginning. And then she cornered me in the parking lot and started screaming at me, how can I do this? Why didn't I tell her? And then I said, I, I was cowering and said, I don't even have your phone number. And after that, then we spoke literally almost every day for a good portion of, of the remainder of our relationship, which lasted from when I met her to when she passed away. Wow, that that is quite the story, and to think it's like it sounds like a story, right? It's like too good to be true. It's like amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's just incredible. I'm obviously a huge, well, not obviously, but I am a huge fan of her work. And there's a building here in Vienna. Um, she designed at the university, and it's phenomenal. Um, so I guess I wanted to talk a little bit. I guess you know you, you spoke of how many shows you've curated of hers and. And you've put on shows of your own as well. What has been, I guess, the most successful show? Um, and I guess, how do you measure success? Is it like how much monetary value it brings? Is it the press coverage you get? Is it whether you make a splash in the, you know, um, become a, 
you know, controversial, so to speak? Like what, how do you measure success for the shows you create? That's that's an extraordinary question. It's not just a question about me and my life and art. It's a question about life in general for everybody. How do you measure success? I've really never done any, I mean, of course I've, I have to make a living to pay my bills and to live, but I've never really professionally pursued something solely for economic, like for remuneration. I, I don't, everything I do, I would do for free. Often it ends up that way, not for lack of trying, but it's amazing because I've sold a Cezanne painting for tens of millions of dollars on behalf of a client. And I can't say, I mean, there are people that really get off doing a lot of deal flow. And that just isn't the case for me. I mean, commercially, in my own practice, the biz- the biggest success I ever had was in February, when in all of 30 years of a career, in about five minutes or seven minutes, I sold nearly 600 NFTs on Nifty Gateway. And that was, I had, I'm one of the only people that ever got into NFTs without any notion that you could actually make serious money from it. Because when I first started, it was actually before anyone had made, you know, tremendous amounts of money. And that was back in September when I found out about it before Beeple, the digital artist who sold something for $69 million before he had sold any pieces. Obviously, he's had a bit more success than me. But I don't I mean, even the modest success I had, which was in the six figures still, but in the lower end, that was really it just really kind of. uh was this positive affirmation that people could actually want to buy and live with um, my artwork. So that was really a tremendous, uh, that felt really, really good personally and professionally. It wasn't really so much that I had this money in my pocket, but it was really the fact that, you know, it was legitimizing. It shouldn't be in a sense because it's a pretty reductive way of kind to, have self-esteem or value yourself. But I mean, I've been, I've written for New York Magazine. An article I wrote for New York Magazine was fully reprinted in the Times in the UK last June. I was on the front cover of the magazine section of the New York Times for my curatorial projects in 1996. I think it's just really um, being accepted amongst your peers for activity that you created from whole cloth um, being able to publish in a book published by MIT was these are great accolades and teaching at Yale uh, when I never took an art class in my entire life. These are things that really kind of give me a great sense of satisfaction, way more than you could put a monetary value on something, because I really believe just these kinds of simple successes that come from hard work perseverance, like I've mentioned, from years and years of applying myself, giving a lecture for a thousand people. When people call me and simple things of getting like letters from people about having a positive impact and somehow uh, changing the course of somebody's life in a very simple way or small way goes a long way to making me feel that I've accomplished something that's meaningful beyond just increasing my bank account. Mm, Wow. Well, you've certainly achieved amazing, amazing uh, things. I Something you said to me which was super interesting in one of the interviews I, I watched of you is you said um, that people don't want unique masterpieces. They want what their friends have. And it made me think, it made me think about fashion because fashion is something I love. 
and, you know, fashion imitates art, right, or vice versa. But, um, you know, let's think, you know, I was in a shop the other day and this this um, um, sales assistant said to me, oh, Sarah's like being in a girl band. You know, everyone just wears the same thing. I thought to myself, well, true. And it put me off it for about 2.5 seconds. And then I realised, well, it's bloody successful though. So I guess I just want to perhaps dive deeper into that um, why you have that 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 positioning? Um, yeah, why why you think that? I guess why people don't want unique masterpieces and they want what their friends well, have. Really good point again. And I just think that people, you know, in the art world, there's a little bit of fear. There's a lot of bit of fear. And yeah. when people spend considerable sums of money, like I said a few times in this talk, that success breeds success. So people are fearful to have a point of view, to take a position and don't have the courage to be, you know, the person that determines that something is good or bad without a consensus. So it's really as simple as that. I mean, unfortunately, there's many, many buyers of art that buy with an organ other than their eyes. They buy art according to the, with their ears based on what their other friends are buying. I mean, when it's $5,000 for a painting, nobody cares. When it's 50000 people take a bit of notice. And when it's a half a million dollars, everybody wants it because somehow, you know, when you go, I mean, I could teach anybody off the street everything there is to know about contemporary art within six months, basically. And if you go to all of the previews, there are major auctions coming up in New York City on May 11th and 12th at Sotheby's and Christie's and then in June at Phillips. All of the auction houses have previews and they're all coming back into force now after COVID and the restrictions are opening up. And you could view all of the work that sell at the evening sales, which is the more valuable stuff, and the day sale, which is um, the less valuable stuff. And once you go to a series of these previews, you'll see again and again the same names cropping up. And it's because when something does well at auction, all the other works come out of the woodwork and everybody wants what just did well and had a success. So in a way, people are comfortable with familiarity. They're scared to take a risk. They're fearful of making a mistake. And they mostly people don't trust their own intuitive, instinctual relationship to encountering something fresh and something new. Not until they've seen, like, like I said, like something do well at auction more than once to see something that has been collected by their peers, then they get this kind of level of comfort and they feel better about jumping in. And that's why you'll see the same names again and again, like in the modernist sector, like Picasso and Matisse and Monet and Miro and Giacometti and Calder and all of these artists that have had success after success. And of course, there are building ingredients that constitute value in art, which is a critical response, museum collections, auction exposure, international gallery exhibitions, biennials and traveling not-for-profit exhibitions. All of these different ingredients are what foster value. So that all makes sense. But when you're looking at the newest art, contemporary art, which I said you can acquire for hundreds of dollars, not even thousands, and it's those things that require a leap of faith and you have to build some criteria with which to judge. And like I said before, the longer you do this, there is such a thing as an objective notion of quality. 
and you have to be able to sniff it out like a truffle pig. So I just think that the reason obvious things by obvious people make obviously high prices, it's because that's where the comfort level is. That's where past success lies. The market is by far in no way a definitive uh, definition of value. In no way do you measure value simply and only. Of course, price has to do with how good something is. That's a measure of it. But people don't understand that taste change, fashion changes over history. And there could be there were artists in the 1800s that sold for 200,000, which would be the equivalent of millions today that subsequently plummeted. And I've seen it a million times, artists that have been selling for half a million to two million that subsequently go down, you know, sometimes to two or three thousand dollars in a very short period of time. And in this day and age where everything is so swift, judgment is so swift, uh, the whipsaw of, you know, vacillations and prices could be violent. So really, I mean, there's something to be said by, like I said, it's a slow burning process to accrue knowledge, but then you have to trust, you can, you have to trust yourself and the framework that you've developed to appreciate what's good and what's not good, according to you know, being some degree a connoisseur. Absolutely. And and when it comes to what's good and what's not good, so to speak, are there some NFT artists that we should watch out for? Or could you perhaps give us some pointers? And anyone listening, we're not telling you to go and invest or we're not giving um, advice, so to speak, but any, I guess, uh, perhaps you that you appreciate, let's say Well, that. again, like, I mean, th- this is such a new segment of the art world. And, uh, I haven't even put in enough time that I could make any definitive, you know, um, prognostications about what's great and what's not great. But I have an exhibition that opens just in a matter of days, uh, in Cologne in Germany at an amazing gallery called Nagel Draxler, an art gallery that's been around for, uh, for 35 years. And it's incredible to be able to have an exhibition in such a high profile gallery. So in this show, there's a really, it's a digital show, but there are some art, there are some artists in the exhibition. Like one is Kevin Abash, A-B-O-S-C-H. And he's in his early fifties. He just had a very, very successful uh, drop with OpenSea, one of the premier uh, platforms, but that's one where there are no gatekeepers and anybody could simply upload, open a wallet on MetaMask, have a few hundred dollars in their account and mint an NFT themselves. Kevin just had a very successful $6 million drop with a thousand different oh. pieces. But then again, you could buy one of his pieces for you know under $5,000. And I just bought one on the secondary market because there was an auction and you had to be in the right place at the right time to get one but I bought a piece for $3,000 and he's brilliant and really one of the early, early um, artists in the digital art using artificial intelligence and various mathematical and aesthetic kind of ways of creating in turn amazing visual art. Uh, There's another artist uh, called Osinachi, O-S-N-I-A-C-H-I, and he's from Nigeria. And that's a incredible example of someone who's nowhere near the like typical 
obvious obvious hubs of the international contemporary art world, and he's been able to forge a successful career solely as a digital maker. And he makes the just they're they're fantastic, and you could you can own a digital file and just print it out at the printer in the same way you could buy a David Hockney. Uh, iPad drawing from one of the biggest galleries in the world for over well over a hundred thousand dollars, and you're just buying a photographic print of a JPEG. And with digital art, what people don't understand, like my exhibition in Germany is going to have photographic prints, 3D printed sculpture, videos like computer, like flat screen TVs, in essence, just hung on the wall, displaying on loops these works. So there's all there's another artist, Anna Riddler who is based in the UK and she's again one of the pioneers of artificial art employing artificial intelligence she's in the exhibition and all of these artists are very still affordable uh, yeah so those are just a, a smattering of the 13 artists that I'm going to exhibit in this show coming up in Cologne Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, we have two um, final questions here at Parlay Me we always love to ask. They're equally important. Um, not not really, but <laughs> is there, we usually ask it from the um, an entrepreneurial perspective, but you can name an artist if you like, but um, which artists are entrepreneurs. So, um, but is there an entrepreneur or an artist rather that has inspired you that has, I guess, um, embodies what it is we usually say to be an entrepreneur but in this case what it embodies to be an artist um, and it can be someone you know it it could be someone in your family it doesn't have to be a well-known person or it can be like an Andy Warhol like um, but yeah is there someone that stands out to well, you? I'll say two very dissimilar two quick things from a commercial point of view the art dealer Larry Gagosian he just turned 76 He's a notorious art dealer. He has 18 galleries across the world in so many different time zones. There's never a minute of the day that doesn't transpire without one of his galleries being open. And I've criticized him and he's kind of like this benchmark for like, you know, all of the best and all of the worst in the art world. He's notorious, he's ruthless, and he's single-minded in his kind of pursuit of doing deals. And he loves... Like he, as excited I get about sharing information and teaching or curating or making art, he gets fired up from consummating a very high-end deal for tens and tens of millions of dollars. But even though we've had a kind of adversarial relationship in the past from my critical writing, at the same time, I've really admired and written positively about the fact that he's one of the few people that is absolutely self-created. He started with nothing. He was selling posters in the street, literally in Los Angeles. And from there, he just parlayed that through sheer determination into an international global art empire. And we never really, I had written about him a million times. I pissed him off. He was spreading terrible, saying terrible things about me. Then I did something else, defending him publicly about some random thing. And then I knew that he, he, he came to appreciate me and all of these people, even my worst enemies, always read every word that I write about the art market or the art world because they know that I'm, it, I may be an asshole, but I'm sincere, passionate, and I have no ill will about anyone. And if I ever wrote something disingenuously or without good faith that was true or you know, for vindictive reason, I would lose my credibility. And, the, and with social media and 
in 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 immediately you find out like the critics come out yes. if you did something wrong or said something that was you know uh, it's unforgiving. Well, you will yes. find out in three seconds or less that you made a mistake because people will come out from all walks of life on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and point out your failings. Anyway, I called Larry out of the blue uh, last September and said it would be great to get together. And he was in the Hamptons where he has a big estate where he was uh, quarantining from COVID. And he said, well, when are you going to be around? I'm like, I'm not. I'm only going to be around to see you. And then he said, he'll call me back. And I thought it would never happen. Then he called back and I had dinner with him. And it was absolutely elucidating that here was a man who had nothing negative, sarcastic, or vindictive to say about anybody. And when he showed various artworks in his house, this enthusiasm was so pure and so refreshing that someone who spent his life creating some of the biggest commercial successes in the history of art, he would literally go down as one of the world's greatest, most successful art dealers globally. And at the same time, he had this childlike enthusiasm for art that was absolutely, it was an end. He's completely self-made. And I found that incredible. At the same time, there's, there's an artist, an American artist who died in 1988, Paul Tech, T-H-E-K. And he's someone again, like Vito Acconci, who died destitute. And he just made his art day in and day out and success or fail. He had early success in his career, followed by decades of failure. He died of AIDS, sadly, at the age of 53 in 1988. He had only one museum in the, in the United States owned a drawing at the time of his death. And I was able to curate a show of his work later on, I mean, in 2013 at Pace Gallery in London and sold the piece to a museum for $1.1 million. And it has nothing to do with the money, but it's that this artist was never deterred, whether it was a lack of financial success, critical failure, lack of support, never stopped his single-minded pursuit of his vision of making art and what it should look like. And he never settled. And to this day, it touches me deeply. And I'm so glad that I've had a teeny little part in advising the Whitney Museum in New York and the Reina Sofia in Madrid on exhibitions that they had. And I've contributed to this book that MIT published, given lectures about him and written about him. And it's amazing that he still his life carries on in spite of how difficult it was for him during his lifetime. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing those stories. Wow. Larry sounds incredible too. So, so um, our final question here, um, and we're not endorsing gambling by any means, but if you were a gambling man, would you be a blackjack a roulette or a poker player? I would buy art. <laughs> they, that's and the I would best buy guys. art that's that that is unknown, unproven. There's no consensus. I would trust my gut feeling to like and living collecting art is not something you do to fill the walls in your house. It's a lifetime pursuit of living with you know pieces that reflect our cultural, um, social, political, economic, and especially nowadays te technological uh, life because all of these instances, all of these spheres play a dramatic role in our everyday lives. Living with art is like living amongst the pages of a history book in real time. And it just, it, it enhances every part of my life. They've even done studies that living with art has medicinal effects of lowering blood pressure, reducing anxiety. They employed in a hospital I did some volunteer work with in London. 
and uh, proactively putting artworks in all of the rooms of the patients. And there's been clinical benefits that the patients have received from such. So spending money on unproven art is always going to be a leap of faith. It's always going to be a risk. It's always going to be a gamble. But the art doesn't give you a monetary dividend, but it gives you something deeper and more spiritual and uh, transcendent. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, thank you so much, Kenny, for sharing your story with us today. It's just exceptional. And I wish we had more time because every story you've mentioned today is just a life of its own. So it's just incredible. Um, And that's why I did call you a character because you've had all these extraordinary experiences that have definitely made you um, a character that you are today. Um, If you are, I guess, in Cologne in the coming days, by the time you're probably hearing this podcast, it would have passed. But um, you're going to see more, obviously, of Kenny's work. Check out his Instagram. Um, Is there a way that you like people to get in contact with you, Kenny? People can either DM me off of Instagram, which is just my name, Kenny, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And my website, which has all of my archives on it, more than you ever wanted to know, is simply my name, <laughs> kennyshachter.art, A-R-T. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you, Kenny. I really appreciate your time today. And I can't wait to see your journey, your further journey, especially in this exciting NFT space and just in general. So I thank you and enjoy beautiful Vienna. Thank you for listening <laughs> to me, you poor thing. I feel I- for you. Oh, my goodness. It's been extraordinary. I loved it. So thank you for sharing your story. And uh, we will keep following you. That's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm just um, 